we want you guys to remember what the, uh, the disciplines are at Grace Bible Church. I'm going to run through them real quickly here, uh, the disciplines for men. So if you have your notebook, turn it over, look at the back side. What we're going to do today is we're going to move through our disciplines, top to bottom, left to right, um, discipline one through discipline five. Uh, later on in the year, I want to talk about how it is that the disciplines three and two can affect discipline one, how discipline three can affect discipline two and one. Um, so moving backwards through the list, we want to grow in our understanding of how it is that we care for our heart and that moves us into fruitful ministry here in the home and then in the church. But we also want to talk about how fruitful ministry in the church has implications for uh, our home as well as for our own care for our own hearts. But we'll start here with discipline one. Again, it's the heart, and we've talked about the emphasis here is to care for your own heart with daily fellowship with God, alone with him, over your, your Bible, reading his word, and in prayer. Caring for your heart and having a right relationship vertically with God, being near to him in your heart, is, is the first step that we all need to accomplish. Um, everything else is, is missing the point if we've leapfrogged over our own heart. So we want to make sure that we're guys who are taking the time we need to care well for our heart, to read our Bibles carefully, to enjoy the Lord, enjoy worshiping him as we do that, and to communicate back with him in prayer what we're learning from him as we read his word. Our prayer time is a time of confession. It's a time of praise. It's a time of, of thanksgiving, and it's a time of asking. And uh, that's what we want every man here to do, is to be growing in their desire to meet alone with the Lord. So we want to do that as, as best as we can. And we also looked at discipline to the home. And we talked about the first place a man takes the fruit of his own heart shepherding it into his home. His wife, his kids, his roommates, his friends, whatever it is. Um, he takes his own softened, biblically informed heart. And he allows those principles from God's word to influence how he interacts with the people that God has put him in, in contact with in his own home. And his heart is to run hard after that. And we looked at D3, the ministry, and, and how it is that the man who's caring well for his own heart and in his own home, he's well positioned to enter into this church and have meaningful relationships and influences. You meet someone here, you can invite them to your house, and when you invite them to your house, you invite them into a house that's, that's functioning well. And so that's how Discipline 2 flows into Discipline 3. Um, whatever ministry the Lord has prepared for you, whether it's a formal ministry here at this church, maybe you're serving in Next Generation Ministries, or you're on the greeting team, or maybe you, you uh, serve the communion trays, or whatever else it is. Um, whether it's a formal ministry or it's an informal ministry, just in your relationships here, um, those relationships, that service is enhanced as um, the Lord has grows you in your own heart, your own care for your own home. We also looked at Discipline 4, the qualifications. And uh, these are the things that we want every man in this room and every man in this church to be running hard after, the deacon qualifications. God spells those out for us in 1 Timothy 3, and we have the privilege of just looking at those, and we have the opportunity to assess ourselves regularly with how we're doing with those things. Um, the man who's caring well for his own heart and in his own home, and he's functioning well in the church, He's going to be a guy who is growing in his qualification to serve in a former role at this church. Because as you read through those qualifications, so many of them have to do with your own heart care. So care well for your heart, and uh, that gives you the opportunity um, one day to serve in a formal role in this church. And we have a lesson on the deacon qualifications later in the year. And what we'll emphasize is the fact that there's a, a leadership at this church at the elder level. And you've got the, the body of the church, and the deacons form a, a very significant 
influential, very important role between the two, where they uh, interact with the body, they interact with the leadership of the church, uh, helping the, the leadership of the church understand more of what's happening in the body. And um, we'll talk about that more later in the year. I'll teach that lesson, and it's a really good way to see that God uses servants in this church in lots of different capacities um, in very important roles. And as I say that, I want to make sure that we understand that, that there's not this, this separate layer of guys that floats off in space called the elder leadership. And we're a part of this church as well. We want to be mixing with the church and involved in the church. We're members of this church. We need to be cared for by everybody else, just like everybody else does as well. So we want to make sure that all the guys are looking at the qualifications and thinking hard about what it looks like to be, to be obedient and to pursue those diligently. Lastly, we looked at the hermeneutic discipline five, and it's really important that the man who is increasingly subjecting his heart to God's word um, and caring for others, he's being a good candidate for uh, equipping, further equipping with the word. We want every man in this, this church to desire to be every bit more competent every day, year by year, growing in their ability to handle the word. And as a church, we want to make sure that, that we provide the opportunities for that. And there's many guys here who've taken the trust and they're back here just to encourage other men. And that's really, really good. We want guys to, to run hard after that. Today, what we want to talk about is one way that we can grow and enrich our esteem for Christ. When you're sitting down and you've, you've got your Bible and you're starting to You've got this time set aside in your day, however much time it is to meet with the Lord. You, you bow your head, you, you think about Christ, and you think about what he's done for you. What I want to share today is something that can help us grow in our esteem for Christ. Um, many times we stop and we think about Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. We never want to lose sight of, of the fact that Christ is the one who has saved us. And, and it's his work on the cross that has, has accomplished for us what we need. We're going to look at two things today. Uh, we're going to look at two passages so first, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2? We're going to look at the uh, aspect of Christ being our substitute. And I think we all understand in this room, yeah, Christ was our substitute. He went to the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Um, we, we get that. We want to take a, a closer look at that and what that really means. Um, I know that when I sit down, it's, it's very tempting for me to just gloss over and slide through. Yeah, thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross and bearing my sin. Uh, let's take a look at what the passage says, and then we'll take a look at some implications for us as we uh, can think about that. First Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Something that's easy for me to forget is that Christ actually bore my sin in his body at the cross. And yes, he was on the cross A.D. 30, so almost 2,000 years ago, 1998, 92, 93 years ago, whatever it was. Uh, he was on the cross, and he was on that cross for a period of approximately six hours. Mark's Gospel tells us in chapter 15, verse 25, that it was the third hour when they crucified him. A few verses later in verse 34, it was the ninth hour when they took him down. So he was on the cross for approximately six hours. Um, what I want us to do is to think carefully about what it means for Christ to bear our sins in his body on the cross. And the word I want to put in front of you this morning to help us get some idea of how we need to esteem Christ is the word scope. What is the scope of our sin? Um, if you're like me, you're 57 years old next month. Um, 
there's an awful lot of sin in my life that started at a very, very, very young age. Um, I've shared this with some people. I've, I've not shared it with others, but I'm probably good for about six offenses, maybe ten offenses against the Lord every hour. Every six to ten minutes, I'll find myself running after some errant thought, some judgmental thought, some impatient thought, uh, a word that's not carefully thought out, that's not a blessing to others. Um, something I do, something I do with my hands, my feet, something I expose myself to. Um, what I think is, when I think about all of that, I, I start to think about the the volume and the quantity and the scope of my sin. Um, and the idea here is not to think about numbers, but the idea here is just to think about scope. If I'm capable of running after sin at, at every moment, and it, it seems like oh, probably 10 or so an hour, that's 86,000 times I've laid up an offense against my Savior every year. And at the end of 57 years, I've run up about 5 million sins against my Savior. And what's really sobering about that is when I stop and think about how many of those I'm actually able to identify, uh, the percentage that I can actually remember, and I can actually identify with a location and a time and an actual Bible verse that I, that I transgressed, is very, very small. I can probably remember if you gave me a sheet of paper and said, write down the things that you've done um, that have been offensive to God with the occasion and the sin itself and, and the passage that you violated, I could probably come up with 50 or 100 things that I've done if I was careful and thoughtful. When you place 50 sins on one side and 5 million that I've actually committed, there's 50 of them that I can actually really remember that I could articulate. That's one one-thousandth of one percent of my sin that I can actually remember. And the point here is not to put numbers in front of you. The point here is just to put in front of us the scope of our sin and how little of it we actually remember. But that when Christ was on the cross, our passage says he bore our sins in his body on the cross, every single one of them. Uh, the Father knew everything we would do from the day we took our first breath until the day he brought our life to an end. And he understood that very clearly, and he charged every one of those to our Savior, knowing that our Savior would suffer in our place. So the first thing I want us just to think about that can grow our esteem for Christ is the fact that he bore our sins in his body, and, and what that really means. Not just what I can remember this week that I've done, but the things that I did in March of 1971, and August of 1976, and January of 1990. Um, every single one of them were in his body at the cross, and every single one of them was subject to God's penalty. So that's the first idea that, that really helps me grow in my esteem for Christ, and I would encourage you guys just to think about that. Uh, the second thing that, that I want us to put in front of us is the idea of propitiation. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to take a look there at propitiation. So we have Christ bearing our sin in his body on the cross. In my case, it's a whole lot of sin. I know I've been sinning an awful lot in my years. Um, but he's bearing the sin of every other believer who's ever lived as well. Um, it's, it's said that approximately one out of 20 people who have ever lived is alive today. That means that seven and a half billion people on this earth, this earth has seen 150 billion people who've lived. And if even 1% of all people who have ever lived, lived have put their trust in Christ, 
That means that Christ died for one and a half billion people. He died for 1,500 million people. And each one of them has their own body of sin that Christ suffered for. So this helps us understand just how much sin was in Christ's body when he was on the cross. And it helps us to look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, so we can understand exactly what he did for us. I'm going to start. Um, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the one who's on the cross is the one who is righteous. God is taking an innocent, righteous substitute, putting him on a cross in place of the dirty, wretched sinner. Verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And the whole world there means all that believe in the world. So propitiation is the satisfaction of wrath. So God, in his infinite holiness, is infinitely offended by each and every one of our sins. Every single one since the time we started committing them against him until the time we breathe our last. And Jesus was the satisfaction of the Father's wrath against every single one of those. And we really can't comprehend the, the wrath of the Father, the wrath of a holy God who is equipped with such power that he can create this entire universe. He has the power to sustain not only our sun, but millions and millions of stars in the sky that are every bit as large and every bit as substantial, burning at the same temperature, with the same sound and pressure and smell. That's how powerful our God is. And we think about what his wrath must be like if he's that powerful. And we think about his holiness and, and the extent to which our sin is an offense against that holy God. It's probably a much more greater, greater extent than we think. And so you have this infinitely holy God with an infinite wrath that would last us an eternity to satisfy. And Jesus satisfied all of that in a period of six hours on a cross. Every single one of my sins and every single sin of every other believer who has ever lived in human history. And he did it in six hours on a cross, three, four hundred minutes, something like that. He was very, very, very busy when he was on that cross. And only the Son of God could satisfy the wrath of God. I, sh I share all of that because I, I want us to just think carefully about what we're doing when we thank Christ for dying for our sin which is very, very helpful to, to grow in us a heart of worship and then a heart of reverence for the Lord, our Savior, as we remember what it is that he's done for us. So if, uh, if you ever find yourself a little dry in your confession, if you ever find yourself saying, well, yeah, I need to kind of confess this and this, and it's really good to remember exactly what it, it, it did, the, the cost that it was to Christ um, as he suffered in your place. So if you're, if you're struggling or if you're thinking carefully about how to grow your esteem for Christ, one way to do that is just to consider the scope of your sin, the magnitude of it, the number of it, and then to consider the Christ and the work that he did to satisfy the Father's wrath. And the good news in all of that is that when Jesus was on the cross, John records for us in chapter 19, I think it's about verse 28, uh, when everything was done, when everything had been accomplished, Jesus said, it is finished. And so we have on one hand the sobriety of everything that we've done, but we have on the other hand the joy that Christ actually was capable of, of satisfying and finishing and bringing to an end the Father's wrath against us. So we can be overjoyed as we're sobered with what it is that we've done. We're overjoyed that he had the, the resources, the wherewithal within himself, the capacity to 
satisfy God's wrath against us and against everybody else who's in the body of Christ. And that is an occasion for, for great, great joy. So um, if there's something that you can take from this that would encourage you, would grow you in your prayer life and add another dimension to the way in which you can worship Christ for who he is and what he's done, uh, very thankful for that opportunity. So give that some thought. And if you're looking for ways to grow your esteem for Christ, all right. So just briefly, we're going to review um, what we have in our unregenerate man, our regenerate man, and our heavenly man. Um, when God's transformation of man, we have the unregenerate man who is unmixed in his sinful condition. He can only sin. He's unable to not sin. Um, God performs the regeneration event. He sends his Holy Spirit to a person to regenerate that person, make them new. That person is in a mixed condition. Um, and then the process of death is what transitions the person out of this world into the next age, transitions the believer into the next age. Uh, that person becomes the heavenly man. That person is now unable to sin in the presence of Christ. Uh, the problem is here on this earth, we are still prone to sin. And today we're going to be looking at three truths. They're a very accurate description of the unregenerate man, but they're truths for us as well that, that relate to believers. So we're going to look at those three. Uh, they can be troubling to our hearts. We're going to look at them, and we're going to look at the work that God has done in the life of the believer. So uh, the goal here is that we leave, again, impressed with God and in awe of God because of what he has done to save sinners and what he has done to equip us to live a holy life. So we're going to start by looking at three troubling truths from my heart. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Um, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19 together. What we want to do here is look at what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. What keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. And as you look at the book of Ephesians, you have six chapters in this book. And the chapter and verse divisions were, were added later. But in the first three chapters, Paul describes what God does to save a sinner. And in the last three chapters, Paul describes how it is that believers, having been saved, can live together in a right relationship with each other. In chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, just before the passage we're going to be looking at today, we see the function of the body in relationship to one another. And what you notice as you look at that is the inner working of all the members together in the body. In verses 11 and 12, you have apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And God provided all of them for the equipping of the saints. In verses 15 and 16, you see the body functioning together, speaking truth to one another in love. And the whole body causing the growth of the body. So you see that God has a design for the body of Christ. And and the corporate body of the Christ has a design for how they're going to live out their life together. And so with that picture in mind, Paul begins to talk about the aimless walk and the futile mind that is present in the unbeliever. And I'll read the passage for us. Verses 17 through 19 of Ephesians 4. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have been given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. 
So if you look in the middle of verse 18, Paul is explaining why believers are ignorant, spiritually ignorant. And the ignorance that is in them is not an accidental ignorance. It's not an ignorance that is unintentional. Actually, it's a very intentional, purposeful ignorance. The reason that the unbelieving man wants to remain ignorant of God and his will, it's right there at the end of verse 18. It's because of the hardness of their heart. The hardness of heart is what gives the man a desire to remain spiritually ignorant. So we have to ask ourselves, what is hardness of heart? Hardness of heart is to willingly reject in your heart what your mind knows to be true. It's when at a heart level you're rejecting what your mind knows to be true. So what we're going to do here is we're going to make our way backwards through this passage. It's because of that hardness of heart that a person is spiritually ignorant. And it's because of that ignorance that the person is excluded from the life of God and darkened in their understanding. And back in verse 17, this spiritual darkness is why the believer is walking in the futility of their mind. So the person who's spiritually ignorant is excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of their heart. And that is the natural response of the unbelieving man, the man who is in an unmixed sinful condition. But the believer has the ability to harden his own heart from time to time. And he can lose his softness of heart and his responsiveness to the truth of God. Not in a permanent way that the unbeliever is in that condition, but the believer has the ability to do that periodically and from time to time. And so to see that, we want to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to look at the person of Christ. And the author's purpose in Hebrews, one of his purposes, is to show how Christ is superior to every other thing. Throughout the letter of Hebrews, you see several themes about Jesus. One is that Jesus is a better high priest than Israel had in the Old Testament. Another theme in Israel is that Jesus has a higher position than all of the angels. He has a more exalted position than they. He's also a mediator of a better covenant than the other priests were. And here in chapter 3, we find that Jesus has a superior role to Moses. And this is going to relate to how a believer actually is able to harden their heart. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read verse 1. Then I'm going to drop down to verse 5 and then go through verse 8. And so the author writes, and again, he's writing to believers here. And we can see that in verse 1 because he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him. We're going to drop down to verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all of his house. In verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confession and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. So the Christian in verse 1, the believer, the holy brethren, he is to consider Jesus. There's an instruction there for the believer. Consider Jesus. So we're to keep Jesus at the front of our mind. And what are we to recall about Jesus? We see that in verse 1. 
we see the, what we're to recall about Jesus is his role, and we see two different roles that Jesus has. We see that the author describes Jesus as the apostle, and in that Jesus was a teacher, he was a prophet. The beginning of Hebrews 1 tells us that in these last days God has spoken to us in his Son. So Jesus was a teacher, he was speaking through his own self for God. So Jesus was, and one of his roles was, he was a teacher. But his second was that he was a high priest. Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. I mentioned that uh, this morning a little earlier. So we have what we're to, to keep in mind about Christ is his role, but we're all to keep it, also to keep in mind his position, the position of Christ. Christ was faithful in verse 2 to the one who appointed him. So this is the first mention of Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus was faithful in his role as teacher. He was faithful in his role as high priest. Everything that he taught was true and accurate. It was complete. And his role as the high priest at the cross where he offered himself as a living sacrifice, he was faithful in that as well. He waited on the cross until Christ had, until the Father's wrath was completely satisfied. So he was faithful. And so the Father appointed Jesus, and in turn Jesus is a faithful Lord and Master over his own flock. And you see that down in verse 6. Jesus is the perfect Lord. He's the perfect Master. But when we as believers lose sight of Jesus, when we don't consider Jesus in his rightful place as Lord and Savior in our lives, uh, that's when we begin to think, and that's when we begin to act as our own masters. We begin to apply our own thought process instead of using the thought process that we need with Christ as our Master mm -hmm. and Lord. We begin to decide for ourselves outside of the counsel of Scripture how it is that we're going to live and what is actually best for us. In a localized context, we don't allow the authority of Jesus to reach into the inner recesses of our hearts and our minds in terms of how we think and what we do. That happens more often when we don't consider Christ and we lose sight of Christ and who he is, his role as teacher and all of his words and his function as the high priest, the one who died on a cross in our place. And if I don't consistently consider Christ by meeting alone with him in prayer and reading my Bible, then that is how I harden my heart. So considering Christ is what keeps me from hardening my heart. Yes, the Christian can indeed harden his own heart, and that is a troubling truth. So that is why we want to promote the message as often as we can, as consistently as we can, that we need to shepherd our heart to keep it soft. So take the fruit of that heart shepherding, we move that into our home and into our relationships here. It's just another encouraging message to all of us to continue to pursue our own walks with the Lord so that we don't harden our hearts. So it keeps the sinner from God as hardness of heart. And secondly, whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart. Unbelief will take root in the heart. And we'll see that when we keep looking at Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. And again, the author is still writing to believers here. and He writes, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the author starts this chapter by explaining Old Testament Israel's problem with hard heart and unbelief. And we see that in verses 8 through 11. 
But the church was going through the same thing. This is the first century church, and the author is writing to Christian Jews. And he tells them, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil and an unbelieving heart. So he's speaking right to believers, and he says, take care that you don't have an unbelieving heart. The sobering reality is this, that because of sin's lingering effects and the mixed condition that the believer is in, uh, your heart will not grow by itself in its belief and its trust. If we don't do anything else, if we don't have any other influence on our heart, our heart does not naturally grow in its confidence in who Christ is. Apart from the intervention of God's word in our life, um, our heart will slowly drift into unbelief and a lack of trust in the Lord. We need to understand the, the connection between, on one hand, trusting the truth of God's word, and on the other hand, maintaining a believing heart. And so to do that, what we'll do is we'll take a look at a story where Jesus is together with two men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. So we're going to flip over to Luke chapter 24, and we're going to look at verse 25. Again, this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's walking with two disciples, two believers. And what we're going to see here is that there's something very fundamental in them that is troubling, and that is their hardness of heart. And so the story starts in verse 14 and moves on from there. So what we'll do is we'll take a look at verse 14. Uh, they're walking along in verse 14. They're talking with each other about the things they have seen. So the resurrection was just a few days ago. They're talking about it. And in verse 17, we see that these men are sad. These men are very, very sad. In verse 19, it describes that Jesus, the prophet, was mighty in his words and his deeds. But in verse 20, we see that the chief priests had crucified him. They were hoping that he would redeem Israel, but it's the third day, if you look in verse 21. And in verse 22 and 23, these people have testimony from women who saw the tomb, and they saw that it was empty. In verse 24, they share that some of us went to the tomb and they did not see Christ. And so they believe that all is lost, and so they're sad. And so when we get to verse 25, we see Jesus rebuke of them. He says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe. These are men who are disciples, and Jesus calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe. And what is it that they, they were slow to believe? Jesus says, you're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They didn't believe God's testimony to them through his word, the Old Testament that they had at that time. There are many, many references in the Old Testament to two things. On one hand, there are many, many references to the crucifixion of Christ. But on the other hand, in the Old Testament, when you read your Old Testament, you, have, you find many, many references to a future conquering king. And they're one and the same person. So how could the crucified Messiah become the conquering king if he wasn't raised from the dead? And everything that they had just seen at the cross, where Jesus, the substitute, was being offered up and the blood was being shed, the disciples were not seeing it for what it truly was. They were slow to believe that Jesus actually was the fulfillment of those scriptures, that Jesus would be crucified, but they were slow to believe that he would be raised from the dead and that he would indeed be the Messiah who would come again. And so slowness of heart to believe is a condition the Christian will face, and the reason why we'll face that is indwelling sin. So the unbeliever in their unmixed condition has no capacity to believe scripture and to understand it. 
but for the believer, sin, if it's allowed to run its course, will slowly drag your heart away from trusting in the Lord. So whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart. And that is the second troubling truth for the heart of the believer. And thirdly, the last troubling truth for us, and this is what we've got to cover before we get to five really encouraging and comforting truths, is that self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Self-made religion never moves us nearer to God. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 8 there. What we have here is, is a conversation between Jesus and the religious leadership. And the religious leadership has been existence. They've been in place for a long time, a couple of centuries, actually. And what they've done is they have created another layer of their own man-made rules. And they have put those man-made rules on top of Scripture. And in many cases, these rules that they have made, these practices of their own, these, these agendas of their own, have been in contradiction to Scripture. And we're going to see that here. And there's the issue of hand-washing that's coming up. And they're using this to test Jesus because they're seeing that Jesus has a following. And Jesus has got people following him. He's got a message, and it's a message that's very contrary to their own message. And the religious leadership wants to get rid of Jesus, and so they use the issue of hand-washing to do that. And so they have this, this issue of hand-washing, and they have their own man-made law that imposed specific hand-washing requirements on people before eating a meal. And this was something was not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not something that's drawn out, that God gave clear instruction in his word to the people of Israel. So in verse 2, they ask Jesus, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So the elders, the religious leadership, has a tradition of hand-washing. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And in response to them, Jesus doesn't answer their question. He doesn't explain, okay, here's, here's why we do this. Instead, he gives them a rebuke. And Jesus shows them how their man-made laws are a violation of Scripture. So in verse 4, Jesus says to them, God said, honor your father and mother, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not honoring God, not to honor God, not to honor his father or mother. So their man-made religion calls them, what's happening here is they have resources. And they have decided that in these resources, they would use these resources to dedicate them to God. They would give them to the temple when God intended actually for those resources to be used to help your aging elderly parents and to honor your parents by caring for them and providing for their needs in their old age. What was happening was these people were saying, well, I've dedicated that already to the Lord. The Pharisees were willing to disobey God's Old Testament command to honor their parents so they could offer that same money as a gift to the temple. And that same money would actually make its way back into their pockets because they offered it and they, they controlled the purse strings in the temple. So it looked holy because it was a gift being given to the temple, but what it did was it violated God's law because the resources weren't being used to honor their parents as God intended them to. So they've devised for themselves what they believe will make them have a right standing before God in place of what God said they must do to be obedient. Jesus says to them the same thing that Isaiah said to wicked Old Testament Israel. Uh, Jesus says to them in verse 7, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. 
So look at where man-made religion, where traditions that man established, rules that man established, takes a man. It takes a man far from God. Their heart is far from him. So the unbeliever decides that he needs to be religious, so he devises something that he believes will give him good standing before God. In this case, I'm going to give money to the temple. But deep down, he's thinking that God will set aside his perfect law in favor of my self-made religion, my self-made law. That's what he's thinking. He's thinking that God will look with favor upon the man who sets apart God's law and makes up his own set of rules and instructions. That person appears to be religious, but God's assessment of that person is that their heart is far from him. So self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God, and that is a troubling and comforting truth. That is a troubling truth for us. So uh, we've got three things that are troubling. First is that hardness of heart keeps the sinner from God. Second is that the heart falls into unrelief naturally, and that self-made religion never moves the heart closer to God. When you look at that, you think, well, where is man's hope? If all that man does only results in man being hardened in his heart and having unbelief and being removed far from God, what is really his hope? Well, his hope is in God. And we have five things to see what God is able to do to give the person hope for a right relationship with him. So what we're going to look at is five comforting truths for my heart. What we want to see here is God's interaction with the believer from the beginning all the way to the end. We'll notice two things. We'll see the power of the gospel in each one of these five truths. And secondly, we'll see God personally interacting with the human heart. So God overcomes hardness of heart. God overcomes slowness to believe. And God overcomes distance from him. And he does that in a way to draw a person to himself. All these things, the hardness of heart, the slowness to believe, the distance from God that man creates by his own man-made religion, these things are really offensive to God. But what God does is he gives him man the ability to see what man could never see in his own former condition. So the first thing we're going to look at is what God does is God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. He enlightens dark hearts. So the picture we want to have here is a, a room that's completely dark. And God turns on the light so we can actually see what's taking place. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. As we turn there, just get a good look at how dark our condition was in our unsaved condition. Our hearts were exceedingly dark in this condition. So in verses 3 and 4, we read that even, and Paul is writing about his gospel to the church in Corinth, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we see here in verse 3 is that we have those who are perishing. There are people who are perishing. And the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded their minds. And what is the result of that blinded mind? We see it in verse 4, that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. They're blinded and they don't have the capacity to see Christ for who he really is. So Satan himself has blinded unbelieving man so that he cannot see Christ in his exalted position. And that is the plight of the unbelieving man. 
He's not able to see because he is blind. But we want to take a look at what God does. And we see that starting in verse 5. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, We do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ as Lord. And we preach ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And then in verse 6, we see what God is doing. And again, he's doing this at the heart level. God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So again, here we have God shining into the hearts of the unbeliever to give them light in the face of Christ. This is what God is doing, shining in our hearts. So God is working at a heart level. So in the same way that God, our creator, spoke the universe into existence, God shines into our heart to give spiritual enlightenment. God doesn't wait for people who have a darkened mind to come to some kind of understanding on their own. He doesn't wait for them to come up with something that will solve their spiritual problem. Instead, what God does is is he takes the initiative and he enlightens them with the truth that they need to believe in order to be saved. So that's our first comforting truth, is that God enlightens dark hearts, dark minds. The second thing that God does is that God cleanses. He cleanses through faith. He loves to use faith as a means of cleansing. We're going to take a look at Acts chapter 15. We're going to go to verses 6 through 11. This is the council at Jerusalem, and there's some background here that's important that we understand. Um, What we have here is we have the church in Jerusalem. We also have believers in another location. And we see that um, the church in Jerusalem, leading Jewish men from that church, had come to Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem. And they have given this message in verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this is a message that's being spoken to Gentiles. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And so what this does is this puts in place a works-based salvation. A salvation that says you can only be saved if you become like a Jew. And so that there was a great debate over this in verse 2. The brethren in the church determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them would go up to Jerusalem to resolve this. So Paul and Barnabas and some others did. They went up to Jerusalem. And it came to be known as the Jerusalem Council. And the major issue that was under discussion was... Does the Gentile need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And this is one of the places in Scripture where you can look at Peter and you can see the maturity of Peter, the strength of Peter in all that he's doing, and you can see uh, how God has matured him and is ready to use him. So in verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much, much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them all of these things. We're going to drop down to verse 9. He says, God made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, cleansing their heart by faith. Verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So whether you're a Jew or Gentile, your heart is dirty and it needs to be cleaned. And God is the one who's going to do it. God does not require us to clean ourselves. And he's the one who does the cleaning. He's the one who does the saving. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, what does God love to use to cleanse the heart of the one who is dirty before him? And we see it in verse 9. What he loves to use is faith. 
He made no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile, cleansing their hearts by faith. And faith, I think we all know this, but it's worth saying, is it's the act of looking away from yourself in order to entirely trust your soul to God. Looking away from yourself to entrust your soul to God. As long as you remain in the natural heart condition where you're willing to look to yourself, you will never trust God. Therefore, you remain spiritually unacceptable before him. But we were not born with the ability or the desire to look away from ourselves. Natural born condition of every young child is to trust themselves, to believe in themselves, to believe that their own will is the, the predominant thing in their life and it's the thing that must be observed and run after. And so this is where grace comes in and we see that in verse 11. Peter says, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor of God. God looks down and he sees the sinner who is at enmity with him and he gives them what they don't deserve. And he gives them the ability to look away from themselves and look to Christ to accomplish what they cannot accomplish on their own. And that is our second encouraging truth. And that is that, that God cleanses our heart through faith. So when God gives us faith to believe in Christ, that is the part of cleansing that we really need. That is what God does to to actually cleanse us. He gives us the faith to believe in Christ. The next thing that God does, and this is so important for the believer to understand, is that God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. We're going to go to Romans 6 here. We're going to look at verses 17 and 18. But Romans 6 is a really great passage because what the whole chapter does is it describes the believer's new relationship to sin. Uh, Prior to conversion, sin is the master of the person. It rules over them. And you can see the effects of that as you observe an unbeliever's life. They're ruled by sin. There might be some level of outward pleasantness, but underneath that person is ruled by sin. They're enslaved to it. And so when God saves the sinner, the first area that he works on is the heart and the inner man. And this is where the bondage to sin really exists. This is where the hardness and the slowness to believe. This is where the quickness to establish our own self-made religion exists. But look at what God does in the heart. We're going to look at verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So there's a transition here. The person is no longer a slave to sin. They're obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which they were committed. And then what they have now is this person is now a slave of righteousness rather than a slave to sin. So prior to conversion, the, the unbeliever was a slave of sin. Your, your heart really was only able to respond to one master, and that master was sin. And the, the slavery language here, this is a language of bondage. There's no freedom to follow any other master. There's no hope. There's no opportunity in the future. The outlook is grim. There's only one master in view for that person. But after conversion, the Christian is obedient from the heart to the teaching of the gospel. And this is not an outward, faked obedience. Uh, This comes from the very core of who you are. That's why Paul writes, you became obedient from the heart. We know that the heart is describing the inner man, who you are. And the believer at regeneration becomes obedient at the heart level. And this is a willful, joyful, free obedience. 
but how did this come about if the person was a slave to sin? This is where we have to see the hand of God at work. And we see that at the end of verse 17. You see the phrase there that says, the form of teaching to which you were committed. When we read that, we look at that and we say, oh, uh, the Christian is maintaining some sort of commitment to biblical teaching. And we see that and we see that as work on the believer's part. And that's actually not what's happening here in this passage. Notice that the phrase, you were committed, it's passive. It's passive language. A commitment is happening to the believer in this passage. It's not describing a person who has committed themselves to something. It's describing the work of one person, which is God, committing another person over to something different than what they were originally committed to. What he's really saying is you were committed over, you were being handed over to the gospel teaching, and now you're committed to obedience to that. The committing and the handing over was done for you by someone else, and you ask yourself, well, who did that? And you look back at the beginning of the verse. Thanks is being given to God because he committed you to that form of teaching. So this is what God is doing. So your position in Christ, your position under the gospel is committed. It's accomplished by God. And that is brought about in obedience from the heart. And that is how God freed you from sin. So we see God working, freeing the believer from their slavery to sin, committing them to righteousness and the gospel. And that's really, really encouraging, that God actually removes the master of sin in our life and deposes that master and sets it aside and gives us a new master whose name is Christ. So that's our third comforting truth. We've got two more to look at. And this one is really, really encouraging to the believer. And it might be surprising to some that Christ actually makes himself at home in the heart by faith. So again, we're going to see that God is working at the heart level. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 through 19. And this is a great doxology here. Paul is praying and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, and his prayer is that God would strengthen the Christian through the Holy Spirit. When we look at verse 17 here, he would strengthen them so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this is not the original indwelling of the Christian at conversion. Paul isn't praying for something that has already taken place here. Paul is doing something else. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's praying, he's praying that Christ would dwell in them. And this dwelling here is an intensified word for dwelling. It's not a, a temporary dwelling. It's not a casual dwelling. Rather, this is a dwelling where the resident is pleased with the accommodations. What, what Paul is really teaching here is he's teaching the believer that we need to run after having the kind of heart that Christ loves to reside in. So here, when Christ takes up residence inside of the believer, he finds a heart that's oriented towards him. So the Christian is to strive to have the kind of heart in which Jesus is at home within them. And just as his original indwelling came by faith through grace, 
this practical indwelling by Christ comes also by faith and ongoing trust. So Christ dwells in us positionally, and that comes at conversion. But what we want to ask ourselves is, is what kind of resonance does he find when he resides in us today on an ongoing basis? If we look back at verse 16, we see that the believer doesn't really have the ability to make himself a suitable residence for Christ. He actually needs help to do this. God provides that help, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, again, in the heart of who we are. So God provides the means for this through the Holy Spirit. And that's our fourth comforting truth, is that God gives us the strength we need through his spirit for us to be suitable dwelling places for Christ on an ongoing basis in our life until we die. So that's our fourth encouraging truth. And the last truth is something that helps us as we think forward, and that is that Christ establishes hearts without blame and holiness. This is really encouraging. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. So let's turn in our Bibles to First Thess chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 11 through 13. And the context here is that Paul is writing to a church that he founded, but he did not have much time with them. Uh, he traveled through western Turkey, and then he traveled over into the north part of um, Greece, and he traveled down the coast, and he got to the church at Thessalonica. After he visited the church in Philippi, he gets to Thessalonica, and he doesn't stay very long because there was persecution. And so he moved on fairly quickly. And he wanted them to understand the condition that they will be in at the second coming of Christ. Because Paul's uh, tenure with that church, because his original stay with that church was not very long, the church had a lot of questions. What about people who die in their faith and other things like that? And so Paul is writing to answer some of those questions. And uh, as we read our passage, we're going to take a note of the work of Christ inside the believer. We're going to see that in verse 13. And so Paul is teaching them. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. So Paul wanted to come back to them uh, because they didn't have much time together in the beginning. And in verse 12 he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. Paul sharing his love for them. He truly loved these people. In verse 13 he says, So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness. So look at verse 13, and we'll take a look at what our Lord Jesus Christ does for the, to the heart of the believer who abound in love for one another. These are people who abound in love for one another and Christ himself establishes their hearts without blame and holiness. And the word established here, the Lord Jesus makes the Christian's heart strong and firmly settled in the gospel. So Christ is making the heart strong and settled in the gospel, growing their confidence and their conviction in the gospel. But he's also establishing them without blame. This is negative. Jesus removes all of our sin. And this is what he does here. That's the negative aspect. But the positive aspect of that is in holiness. Jesus sets the Christian apart from sin. So we ask ourselves, who does this? Verse 12, the Lord Jesus Christ does this. Where does he do this? He does this before our God and Father 
And when does he do this? He does this at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the second coming of Christ uh, to take the church to be with him. So from conversion all the way to glorification, God is at work in the believer. And he's working powerfully within them at a heart level to establish our hearts in holiness. And that is our fifth comforting truth. It's not up to us to establish ourselves without blame and holiness. God does that for us. He does it through Christ. Notice again what, what God does in each one of these things for the believer at a heart level. God enlightens the heart. You have a dark heart, and God shines light into it so that the, the heart can comprehend who Christ really is. Then God takes a dirty heart, and he cleanses that heart. He takes a heart that is ruled by sin, and he frees it from the mastery of sin and makes it a slave to righteousness. And then Christ makes himself at home in a heart, a heart that God gives through his Holy Spirit the strength to be a suitable dwelling place for Christ. And then Christ establishes the heart so it's holy and blameless at his second coming. So the gospel is all about God and what he does to create a new man. So it's good for us to think about what our hurts were without Christ. They were hard. They were unbelieving hearts. And they were eager to be religious without any kind of nearness to God. That's what we were like. But this is what God had to do to change our hearts and secure us all the way to the end. So what does this mean for us? And what does this mean for our response to God's powerful work in our hearts? What our response is, is that we cannot be neglectful of what God is so committed to doing in us from conversion to glorification. What God gives attention to our heart, we must give attention to as well. So my response to God's heart work within me is to shepherd my heart in the way that God has given me the tools to do it with his word, to shepherd my heart with prayer, to shepherd my heart with fellowship with one another, to know him, to worship him, to love him, to fear him, to obey him in all that we do. So just another encouragement that God has done everything for the believer that the believer needs, and the response of the believer is to run hard after him with the tools that God has given us to do it. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you again for what you have done for the believer. I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who rescues. You are the God that overlooks all of our sin. You are not dissuaded by how offensive we are to you. Lord, you're very persuaded by your own commitment to glorify yourself through saving sinners. Lord, I'm thankful for what you do. Lord, you don't just redeem us, but you clean us, you make us suitable, you prepare us, you send your Son to dwell within us. Lord God, you establish us blameless before you. I pray that these truths would be encouraging for all of us. As we step back into our lives, whatever you have for us this weekend, whatever you have for us in the coming days next week, that we would be encouraged by that to live lives that are holy before you. And I pray that your word and our time alone with you in prayer would would serve us well towards that end. Lord, I pray that you would use the men in this church to establish this church, to make this a strong church where we would be faithful to you. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen.